It's Wednesday, November 21st, and this is The Daily Dive. President Trump issued a statement on Tuesday saying that the U.S. will stand by Saudi Arabia regardless of whether Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman ordered the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. The Saudis are central to Trump's Middle East strategy and does not want to lose a huge weapons deal that amounts to billions of dollars. Dave Lawler, Axios World Editor, joins us for more on why Trump is sticking with MBS. Next, it's a high-stakes game for the control of sports betting dollars. Back in May, the Supreme Court cleared the way for states to legalize sports betting, and now legislatures all over the country are starting to work out the specifics. The next fight is whether college and professional leagues will get a piece of the action. Dan Primack, business editor at Axios, joins us with a view from three different sources, NBA Commissioner Adam Silver, Las Vegas, and DraftKings. Finally, the president pardoned two turkeys named Peas and Carrots, although Peas was declared the overall winner. The contest starts out with 50 top-tier turkeys and gets whittled down to the top two. But what happens after the contest? The other 48 get turned into deli meat. Peas and carrots get to go to Virginia Tech's Gobbler's Rest. My producer Miranda joins us for a little history and the process behind the presidential turkey pardon. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I'm not going to destroy the world economy, and I'm not going to destroy the economy for our country by being foolish with Saudi Arabia. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. They did not make that assessment. Joining me now is Dave Lawler, Axios World Editor. The president put out a statement about Saudi Arabia concerning the Jamal Khashoggi murder. He basically said that he's standing by Saudi Arabia. There's not going to be any further action taken to punish them, even though most people have said that the CIA has determined that the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman did have a hand in ordering the death of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. What do we know about the statement that the president put out? Trump has explicitly said that MBS Mohammed bin Salman may have been behind this. He said we may never know. But regardless of whether this order to kill Jamal Khashoggi came from the top or not, we're going to stand by Saudi Arabia. The relationship is too important. And so, yeah, nothing changes. The president cites a lot of investment that the Saudis are putting into the U.S. He says that they're investing $450 billion. $110 billion of that is going to be spent on the purchase of military equipment. What do we know about that? And beyond that, because we know about these weapons deals, but how else does Saudi Arabia figure into the president's plan for the Middle East? Saudi Arabia is the biggest purchaser of U.S. weapons. They're also making big investments in Silicon Valley. There's a lot of linkage between Saudi Arabia and the U.S. economy. Beyond that, Trump has made a big bet on Saudi Arabia and MBS in particular as the linchpin of his Middle East strategy, which which is about isolating Iran. Standing up to Iran is about pushing forward this Middle East peace plan that he's going to roll out shortly. And uh, on those points, Saudi Arabia is a key ally for the United States. He has made a, a big investment in this crown prince of Saudi Arabia as his key partner in the Middle East. And he's saying we're not willing to walk away from that no matter what he did here. Yeah, he does mention in a statement a few times uh, Iran and how Saudi Arabia has been a great ally in our important fight against Iran. So I know that's a big thing for him. There at Axios, you guys had been reporting that the president did say that this is, you know, the assassination was really bad. But he continues to say, hey, this isn't maybe worse than what other countries like China are doing. 
And he continues to say he wasn't an American citizen. It didn't happen on American soil. We know Khashoggi was a resident of the United States, but it's kind of that, you know, it didn't happen here. Why should we care so much attitude? Right. And those statements that my colleague Jonathan Swan reported remind me of an interview Trump did about Vladimir Putin, actually, where he was told, well, Vladimir Putin's a killer. And Trump says there's a lot of killers in the world. His view is basically there's bad stuff happening all over the place. We shouldn't be making such a big deal out of the murder of one journalist when it's an important strategic relationship and when other countries we're dealing with, like China, are committing all sorts of abuses as well. So he's saying this is an overreaction from the rest of the world and, and he's not going to uh, let it change his course. At the end of the president's statement, he just, you know, he has his whole explanation for why he's sticking with Saudi Arabia. And at the end, he says, very simply, it's called America First. Mike Pompeo was doing a short question and answer with the press, and somebody asked him, does America First now mean putting our monetary interests, because of all the weapons deals, above human rights interests? He had a boilerplate answer and everything, but that's kind of what it seems like with everything that we're starting to learn now about the death and with this president's statement. They've explicitly said, even if the guys we're dealing with in Saudi Arabia are responsible for this murder, that's not going to change the way we deal with them. So that sends a pretty clear signal to the rest of the world, right? If you're sitting in a world capital, maybe maybe in Turkey, maybe the new president of Brazil, who has some pretty hardline policies, the Philippines, it's a pretty clear signal from the U.S. that we don't really care what you do when it comes to human rights, as long as the relationship makes sense to us from an economic or security perspective. And I don't even think Trump would challenge that statement. I think that's a pretty clear policy and you can't lay it out much more clearly than he did in this statement. And the president still continues to cast doubt saying, will anybody really know? We don't know. Intelligence officials are saying that Mohammed bin Salman did have a hand in ordering it. The other people caution there might be a varying degrees of to which he was involved, but how else are you involved? <laughs> if you ordered it or you knew about it, you're involved in that whole thing. I mean, to what varying degrees are people trying to cast doubts on this with? First thing we shouldn't believe anything the Saudis say. A lot of what they've said on this has already been proved to be false. So that's number one. The second thing is evidence has pointed to a very high level coordination from the beginning. Now we hear there's uh, reporting from the Washington Post and elsewhere that the CIA has concluded that Mohammed bin Salman ordered this murder. And there's so much evidence in that direction and not much on the other side. Now, I clearly haven't seen this firsthand. So can I say beyond a shadow of a doubt that he did it? No, but President Trump has access to all of this intelligence. And so he may very well know the answer there. And yet, his line is, we don't know, we may never know. So I think he doesn't want to know, to be right, honest. If yeah. he doesn't know, it's it's a case that he doesn't want to know. There is audio tape of some of this assassination. Turkish newspapers are reporting, you know, they're citing Turkish uh, security sources saying that they grabbed him right away. They were fighting. They beat him and tortured him. They called him a traitor. And there's a man's voice saying, it's spooky to wear the clothes of a man whom we killed 20 minutes ago. And we see it on a surveillance video, one of these guys wearing Jamal Khashoggi's suit after that. Uh, so it's just a lot right. of evidence right now. And it's just so weird to take this position. Dave Lawler, Axios World Editor. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. His feeling is that there is certain data that the league has that bookmakers, if not, should be paying for. He's basically looking for a royalty. And his argument is that having, if you're a sports book, having NBA official data 
there is a value in that. Joining us now is Dan Primack, business editor for Axios and host of the Pro Rata podcast. So the battle to legalize sports betting was won this past May by the U.S. Supreme Court. States can create whatever framework they want to allow sports betting now. Some of the specifics are starting to eke out. We're starting to find out how people are planning to do this. You guys took a look at this from three different views. NBA Commissioner Adam Silver, the largest sports book in Las Vegas, and then also from DraftKings, which was one of the biggest daily fantasy gaming apps. How is this shaking up? So Adam Silver has been a proponent of legalized sports betting for years, long before the Supreme Court ruling. In fact, four years ago this week or last week, he wrote an op-ed in the New York Times about this. And that was partially born of the fact that his earlier job in the NBA involved a lot of selling overseas, where you know if you go to Europe, sports betting, including inside of games, is, is just considered standard. It's not unusual. And so Silver's point of view is he, he supports it. He thinks it is good for fan engagement. But that said, he wants a piece. He wants the league <laughs> right. to get a piece. In his words, the league is spending, and he said, $8 billion this year to put on this game, and they should therefore get a cut of a business which is built effectively exclusively on top of those games. He also says that he believes the league's leverage comes in its proprietary data, so official statistics, real-time feeds, biometric data feeds? Potentially biometric. So, so I raised Expl that and, so, and Silver thought it was a possibility. Yeah, he, he does. You know, there's a lot of disagreement on this by, by bookmakers, but his feeling is that there is certain data that the league has that bookmakers, if not, should be paying for. So, so he talks about so-called integrity fees. He's basically looking for a royalty. And his argument is that having, if you're a sports book, having NBA official data, there is a value in that, A, because it would be trusted, and B, potentially... It would be real time. So anytime you watch a basketball game, for example, on TV, you're, you're probably on a six to 10 second delay, which doesn't sound like much, but sports lines are constantly changing throughout the game. New prop bets are being created throughout the game. So Silver's argument is you'll get real time verified official data from us. And then the people who are betting with you with the sports book can trust it because it's official NBA data. A lot of the sports books respond. We can watch TV like everybody else and figure out who got the rebound. <laughs> Explain to us real quick, though, what kind of biometric data feeds could be possible. So in theory, and this is a long-term thing and you would need player buy-in and there are privacy issues, but for example, think if you have, say, a Fitbit or an Apple Watch or any of those sorts of wearables, think of the information, just basic information you have, things like heart rate, etc. Well, in theory, a sports book could change its line based on how tired the star player on a team is or, or how much energy the star player on a team has. Wow. You ever joked about kind of the idea of a sweat-a-meter. It sounds ridiculous, but these are the small little incremental pieces of data which down the line theoretically could become available. <laughs> That's like almost video game statistics now where, sure. you know, the little meter at the bottom starts to turn yellow and red as your player gets tired, meaning it's time to switch him out or something like it that. Is, That's but, so I mean, crazy. Think of, think of some sport metrics in sports today that we didn't used to have, or at least we as fans didn't used to have. Just, just look at baseball, which is the speed of the pitch, how fast the ball is going. We didn't used to get that. Some teams used to track that, but it's not something fans used to have. It's certainly not something sports books used to have, but they use that now to determine, hey, wait, the guy with the 95-mile-an-hour fastball is only throwing 90. He's getting tired, and that affects the lines. What's the view from Las Vegas? They don't want to pay up. No, they definitely don't want to pay the leagues. The, the view from Las Vegas is we have done this for decades. We have done this successfully. We know who our betters are, right? The ball boy can't come in and put money down on the game, nor can his brother or his sister. They feel that they have worked very hard to maintain integrity in the games and the betting process, and they feel that the leagues have benefited 
from what Las Vegas does because it increases engagement. So they see no reason to pay, again, unless there was some sort of actual proprietary data, some advantage they could get. And how about out of DraftKings and other fantasy gaming type apps? I know they hit the market pretty huge. And at first they were saying, oh, you know, we're not involved in gambling, but that kind of all changed once the Supreme Court ruling came down. Yeah, it did. They, they moved very quickly. They were ready to go. DraftKings did, I think, the first month of the NFL season. So DraftKings, for example, has a working sports book digitally in New Jersey, and they did, I think, $7 million maybe worth of business just on betting in Jersey in that first month. They're in an interesting position because they've got money from certain professional sports team owners. They've long been partners with professional sports teams at Daily Fantasy. So they're kind of splitting the difference a little bit. And they're also newer to the business, right? Even even though the woman who's running their sports book is a Vegas veteran from Caesars and, and others, they're splitting the difference a little bit and basically saying we could see paying for certain types of data. And the co-founder there, Matt Kalish, for example, he referenced the fact that the NFL now has chips in right. its footballs, which measure how fast the quarterback is throwing it. That would be the sort of information that he thinks could impact betting lines and that they'd perhaps be willing to pay for down the line. All of this really just seems like it's going to be confusing across multiple states with different leagues, different sports. I mean, it looks like the potential for just a ton of lawyers and a ton of lawsuits later. So in Silver's op-ed, the one from four years ago, he wanted a federal framework. He wanted a federal law. And, and when I asked him about that in, in context of today, he admitted that, that when he wrote that, he never anticipated that the Supreme Court would strike down the law, which banned online betting everywhere outside of Nevada. He just never thought that was going to happen. Now, as he said, there's not really an appetite for a federal law. It would make the most sense. You could have standardization, but it's now working state by state. The game is changing. It's going to impact the leagues themselves and fans alike. So it's going to be a crazy time. Dan Primack, business editor for Axios, host of the Pro Rata podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanksgiving is a time of great American traditions. And today we continue a very special one when... A lucky turkey gets a presidential pardon. Please, I hereby grant you a full pardon. Joining me now is my producer, Miranda. It's Thanksgiving week. We're going to be talking about Thanksgiving stories, related stories all week long. Yesterday, it was the presidential turkey pardon that happens every year. This year, the two birds that were pardoned were peas and carrots, <laughs> although peas was the winner. Right. They had uh, some type of online poll to decide who would be the ultimate winner and peas want out. It's funny. The president says that turkey is so lucky. I've never seen such a beautiful turkey. He goes on to talk about uh, some pretty funny one-liners about how carrots refused to concede and demanded a recount. <laughs> and we came to a conclusion, carrots, I'm sorry, you didn't. we didn't change the result, different things like that. Very funny. It's funny because they put out a bunch of stuff about the turkeys and meat peas, meat carrots, and some details. Peas was 39 pounds. His favorite music or band was Brad Paisley, and his favorite <laughs> snack was popcorn. For carrots, he was 41 pounds. Favorite music or band is Elvis, and his favorite snack was M&M's. Miranda, tell us a little bit more about what they do to these turkeys, and then what happens the day after. So peas and carrots are the first presidential turkeys to come from South Dakota, so that's pretty exciting. Yeah. And before they showed up at the White House yesterday, they enjoyed pretty special accommodations. I would like to live the life of this bird. <laughs> they got to stay at the Willard Intercontinental Hotel and had a spa day. One of the birds got to go in the press room and take a turn at the podium. 
And it's just kind of funny that these birds get the star treatment for a few days leading up to the big event. They get shampooed and dusted with baby powder before the event to make them glisten and get soft before meeting the president. You gotta be camera ready, Oscar. That's hilarious. (laughs) After today, the president said that peas and carrots will live out the rest of their days at the nearby uh, Gobbler's Rest at Virginia Tech University, and they will join last year's birds, Drumstick and Wishbone, who received the pardon in 2017. The way this thing starts off is they get 50 top tier turkeys. These are all from South Dakota. That's the state they were going to pick them from. And they whittle them down to about like from 50 to 10 Then a week before, they uh, get the top six, and it's a beauty contest. They're looking for that turkey that is going to be nice and big and have a a very good demeanor so he's not, like, jumping around and causing a ruckus on the day of. And then they finally have the two, and then they they pick the top one. But a lot of people, PETA, a lot of animal rights organizations, they have a big problem with the turkey pardoning event because they say it doesn't really matter. And it's true. The 48 other losers end up being slaughtered and they become deli meat. Well, and because they're bred, these particular turkeys were bred for the presidential pardon this year. They are way overfed. So they're really big turkeys. They're turkeys that are way too big to be Thanksgiving turkeys. Even the winners themselves, because they're bred for the table, not for longevity. I read something that no turkey has lasted over two years. Yeah, none of the pardoned turkeys live longer than two years. But in the two years, they get to live in these great facilities at Virginia Tech or a petting zoo or wherever they end up going. The Virginia Tech one, it's they're going to be in part of this like science lab yeah. and research lab where people can come in and examine these animals. It's kind of cool. You can take pictures, throw it up on social media. <laughs> they show the history, you know, how the birds were born and then made it to the presidential pardoning. So, yeah, that's kind of cool. And, and those two birds are lucky to be taken care of that way. But as we said, no bird really makes it that long. No. And Oscar, this tradition goes back to 1863 when President Lincoln granted one lucky bird clemency from Christmas dinner. It wasn't necessarily a pardon. His son really took a shine to the turkey. His son named it Jack and said, please, can we keep him? And President Lincoln said, "Okay, that's fine. We'll keep him. There was a guy named Horace Vose, and he was a poultry farmer in Rhode Island. And he was the one who started the tradition of giving presidents Thanksgiving turkeys. The presidents would do different things like Calvin Coolidge did not want the turkey giving at Thanksgiving. He would wanted to say like, oh, I'm going to buy my own bird. But he finally conceded because there was just a deluge of people who wanted to give the president a turkey. And President Truman is often wrongly credited with being the first president to pardon a Thanksgiving turkey. He was the first one to receive a live turkey from the way they do it now, the National Turkey Federation. And those are the people who are in charge of doing it. President Truman didn't pardon that turkey, though he actually ate it. Oh, man. And so did the presidents through uh, Lyndon B. Johnson, except for JFK who was the first one to say, you know, like, we'll just let this one grow and live. It was George H.W. Bush who really made the tradition, like an every year thing, the tradition that we know now. He was the first one to actually do that. Ronald Reagan was the first president to use the word pardon, though, when a group of reporters were making jokes. They were cracking jokes about Oliver North or on Contra, Robert Poindexter, and Reagan gestured at Charlie and said, maybe I'll pardon him instead of the other guys. Right. It's a fun tradition. I, I know it's kind of silly, but I do look forward to it every year because one, 
the silly names. Mm -hmm. Two, you got to hear what the president's going to say about them. Like I said, even Obama would crack jokes. Every president, it's a nice moment of brevity. It was actually funny last year when President Trump did did it for the first time. He's like, maybe I'll revoke the pardon for (laughs) Obama's turkeys. But this one, since the midterm elections just happened, it was chock full of all that stuff with the recount stuff. And uh, hey, we're not going to overturn it. You know, peas want, not carrots. So it's a pretty fun tradition, I think. I do agree with you. Thanks, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.